Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. Today, we are in Proverbs chapter 27. Now, anyone who has listened to the teaching here at GCA for any length of time will be able to answer the following question. What is the most common, often repeated sin in the Bible? Go ahead. You know it. That's right. It's pride. In 1 John chapter 2, starting at verse 15, we're given a warning about the things of this world. And we're told not to love the things of the world. In fact, it says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And then John defines what things he's talking about. In verse 16, he says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. In that single verse, John pretty much summarizes what our problem is. The lust of our human flesh, the desire to satiate our flesh with everything that our sinful flesh desires, the lust of the eyes, because what we see is what we desire. And in a moment in this chapter of Proverbs, we're going to read about the problem with our eyes and our continual desire for everything that we see. And then finally, the pride of life. Just the very fact that we're alive fills us with a certain amount of arrogance and pride where we think we're owed something simply by virtue of the fact that we exist. Or that all human history and the world itself kind of revolves around us. What's good for us is what's good for everyone. And it is interesting that the NASB translated John's words as the boastful pride of life. Because in Proverbs chapter 27, starting at verse 1, it says, Do not boast about tomorrow. For you do not know what a day may bring forth. The reality is, none of us have any guarantee we're actually going to be here tomorrow. So when we start making our plans based on what we think is going to happen tomorrow, and that becomes a source of pride for us so that we are boastful about what we are going to accomplish today and in the guaranteed future, well, that is a sure indication that we don't understand that our lives are like a vapor. Our lives are in the hands of a completely sovereign God who does whatever he wants to do with us. Well, because of that knowledge and that kind of thinking, even James picks up in the New Testament and says, starting in chapter 4, verse 13, Come now, you who say, 
today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. And yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. So all of that falls under the category of the boastful pride of life. And we're told in Proverbs 27, verse 1, do not boast about tomorrow. Recognize that every day you have, every day you get, is a gift from God who determines your number of days and the number of breaths you will take. Therefore, if you start thinking that it's up to you, and that you can determine what you are going to do at any given moment, especially at some moment in the future, then that is tantamount to a denial of God's rights and God's power over you and your life. So do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. James said that, Proverbs says that, and the simple reality is you don't know. You are completely dependent on what God determines, and you don't know what it is that he's determined. So the irony of human bragging, human boasting, especially when boasting about the future, is that you don't actually know the future. God knows the future. He is the only one who can say definitely what is going to happen in the future, and you can't. So, boastful arrogance, pride, have no place in a truly God-fearing person's life. Instead, we ought to say, if God wills, I'll do this and that, because that is an acknowledgment of God's complete control over your life and the circumstances of it. And then as long as we're on the topic of boasting, arrogance, and pride, verse 2 says, Let another praise you and not your own mouth. One of the most pernicious qualities of human pride is that we want to brag about it. We want to tell people who we are, what we've done, why we're important. It's important that I'm here right now doing this very thing. Let me tell you all about myself. Oh, but enough about me. Let's talk about you. What do you think of me so far? It is just so very common to hear people boast about themselves, brag about themselves. And the ironic thing is that nobody likes a braggart. Nobody likes boastful, arrogant people. And yet it is our basic human nature, even though we don't like that characteristic in other people, nevertheless, we'll end up doing it. That's part of the basic 
pride of life. So verse 2 tells us, let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. If somebody else recognizes the value of your talents, your abilities, or your work, and they praise you because you've done something well, then fair enough. But when those good and gracious words about your talents, abilities, or work come out of your own mouth, that is simply a demonstration of your own self-love, your own lack of genuine humility. In this same chapter, look over at verse 21 for just a moment. Verse 21 draws a comparison and says, The crucible is for silver, the furnace for gold. Okay, the crucible is just the place of intense heat, and the purpose of the intense heat in both silver and gold is to purify them by melting off the dross or the impure components of the metals. So the heat and the furnace have a purpose, and it is for the purpose of refining the metal. The crucible is for silver, the furnace is for gold. Now, by comparison, a man is tested by the praise awarded him. So the same way that a furnace tests metal when somebody praises you, that's a test. That is a purifying moment in order to reveal what's really inside you. Are you quick to agree with other people's praise of you? Do you hold your head up and say, yes, that's absolutely true, and you are very wise to have acknowledged and understood how good I actually am? If your reaction to praise is a greater sense of your own self-worth, well, that says something about you. That demonstrates the very pride of life that is going on in your heart and mind. So let's put that all together. Let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips, and even when they do praise you, that is a test to demonstrate what's really going on inside you. Do you receive that compliment, that praise, with appropriate humility and recognition that any gift, any ability, any talent, any work that you have is a gift from God? Or do you use those opportunities in order to raise yourself up yet again and become more engaged in your own pride of life? Verse 3, then, and really so much of the remainder of this chapter, is about human relationships, how you deal with one another, and the particular characteristics of human beings that drive other people to anger. For instance, verse 3 says, A stone is heavy, and sand is weighty. If you fill a bucket full of sand especially if it happens to be wet sand, you know how heavy that can be. Picking up a large stone, not just a rock, but a large stone, is heavy. 
Okay, so we understand the first half of this equation. We understand that Solomon is speaking of things that are weighty and heavy, things that drag you down. But the provocation of a fool is heavier than both of them. That word provocation means something that upsets you, something that angers you. And when a fool says or does things that anger you, that upset you, he says that is weightier on you than heavy stones or weighty sand. And that, again, is the advantage of hanging around people of wisdom, people of intelligence. I think it's why Solomon said so frequently not to be in the company of fools, because their provocations are weighty. Verse 4 then says, Wrath is fierce, and anger is like a flood. Wrath simply means extreme anger, completely losing your temper, exercising your anger in some way that lets other people know how upset you are. And that kind of wrath can be fearful. It is fierce. And anger can just carry you away. I'm sure we've all had the experience of going along fine, not being upset about anything. And then one little thing triggers us, and then we can feel our anger just rising in us, and our temper starts to flare, and the angrier we are, the angrier we get. It's like a flood. It's overwhelming. A flood covers everything. And that's the way unrelenting anger can be. So with that as Solomon's premise, he then says, but who can stand before jealousy? So fierce anger is one thing. Anger that just grows like a flood and takes over, that's another thing. But worse than all those, says Solomon, is jealousy. And jealousy kind of falls under two different categories. One is that you see someone else has something that you don't have. And you desire to have what they have. And so you are jealous of them because of their possession. The other kind of jealousy is the kind that leads to attempting to control other people. And this happens with some great frequency among married people. You know, the old phrase is, when two people get married, the two become one. And then they spend the next seven years arguing about which one. We all have differences. And when we get married to someone, we really understand and discover the differences between us and them. And sometimes, rather than accepting those differences, People try to change their partner in order to make them more like themselves. And if their partner should enjoy doing things, going places with other people instead of just their mate, or if they have talents, or if they have abilities that their mate doesn't have, and their mate becomes jealous of them, and jealousy is the green-eyed monster. 
jealousy causes people to do more damage than just about anything else I can think of in a human relationship. And Solomon recognizes that. When comparing wrath or flood-like anger, he says, but that's nothing compared to jealousy. Who can stand before jealousy? Jealousy is a destructive emotion that is based in human pride, human ego, because it doesn't please me, because it's not about me, because it's not centered on me, I'm going to be jealous of you, and I'm going to try to stop you from either having or doing whatever it is that you have or are doing. And I will use my power, I will use my anger, I will use my threatening, I will use my ability to restrict you, I will use whatever I have at my disposal to stop you to make me feel better. Oh, it's an ugly thing, jealousy is. Now, let me also add that God describes himself as a jealous God. But he, being perfect and holy and righteous, has a holy jealousy for his people. And that's a good thing. That's a positive thing. So don't confuse the two. Because you, as an unrighteous sinner, don't have the ability to exercise holy jealousy. You only have the ability to exercise human jealousy, and that can be monstrous. Okay, verse 5. Better is an open rebuke than love that is concealed. If you really love somebody, and we're talking about the opposite here of fierce wrath or flooding anger or jealousy, we're talking about you really love somebody, you care about what's going to happen to them, and you're trying to instruct them and correct them in wisdom, drawing them toward the fear of God and proper behavior as a result. Sometimes it is necessary when you love someone to correct them. Now, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. I raised my children on the premise that you can tell anybody anything. It all depends on how you tell them. And a loving correction, a loving rebuke, is usually well-received as long as there is sufficient love between the two people having that discussion or that correction. And if somebody, according to Solomon here, according to this proverb, if somebody needs to be rebuked, even an open rebuke, an open correction, if that is the loving thing to do for them, but you don't do it, you conceal it instead, well, that's not better. Sometimes people say, I love that person so much that I don't want to say anything that might make them upset, that might make them think less of me. I'm fearful to correct or rebuke somebody. And so you conceal it. But Solomon says, better is an open rebuke than love that is concealed. If you love someone and they need to be corrected, and you conceal it, that's not always the best choice. Sometimes the ones that you love 
need to be corrected in a loving way. Now, under that same sort of topic heading, verse 6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. If a friend who loves you corrects you, he might in the process wound you. He might hurt your feelings. Again, I have often used the phrase when correcting people, I have said, I'm going to risk you thinking that I'm your enemy in order to demonstrate to you that I am really, really your friend. Because no one else apparently is going to tell you this, but I am going to tell you this. I will correct the person in a loving way, even knowing that it might hurt them, it might wound them. But those are faithful wounds, says Solomon. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. But deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Your enemy who doesn't really care about your good, your welfare, might just speak flatteries to you, might just kiss you repeatedly to give you the impression that they're really your friend. But those kindnesses are for the purpose of fooling you, because they are, after all, your enemy. So even the kindnesses that they might do for you are for the purpose of lying to you. Deceitful are the kisses of an enemy, but faithful are the wounds of a friend. Now, how someone receives or accepts that rebuke, even that rebuke that may wound you a bit, how he responds to it says a lot about him. Verse 7 says, A sated man, that means a man who is full, a man who has everything he needs, a satisfied person. A sated man loathes honey, but to a famished man, any bitter thing is sweet. Now, obviously, Solomon is not just talking about food here. And the men of Hezekiah who collected these Proverbs seem to think that that comparison belonged right here with these Proverbs about human relationships and rebuking and correcting friends. So what this verse really seems to be talking about is that a man who is fully satisfied with himself, a man who is dare I say, full of himself, a man who likes his own thinking and doesn't need to hear from anybody else, he's going to hate even the corrective sweet things, the loving corrective things that he really needs to hear. He's going to loathe them, even though Solomon has compared them to honey. These are good, nutritious, sweet things, but he hates them because he's already fully satisfied. But to someone who's actually hungry, someone who is looking for the ways of God, the ways of truth, the ways of wisdom, the ways of righteousness, somebody who understands that he has none of that within him and he's attempting to gain more of it, then to him, even the bitter things, even the wounding of a rebuke is sweet to him. He recognizes the value of it, and he desires it. He needs to be corrected, and he understands that. 
A sated man loathes honey, but to a famished man, any bitter thing is sweet. So the way a man responds to a correction, to a rebuke, says a great deal about him. And in this same chapter, at verse 19, there's a very similar phrase that, were it up to me, I would have tried to convince the men of Hezekiah to put this proverb up with the others about this topic. It says, as in water, face reflects face. Now the word reflects is added by the NASB translators. The original Hebrew phrase is, as in water, face, face. So the interpreters have concluded that what Solomon was getting at is when you look in water, just like when you look at a mirror, it's your face beholding your face. And with that concept established, he then says, so the heart of man reflects the man. Again, the original Hebrew is, so the heart of man, man. The same way that water or a mirror reflects your face back to you, the things that come out of your heart reflect who you are, what you're really like. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, your speaking, your behavior, even how you respond to correction and rebukes, all of that demonstrates what's really going on inside you. You may have a friend, you may have an associate who's deceitful in the way that they compliment you, in the way that they kiss you, but eventually it's going to come out what's really going on inside them, and they are going to turn on you. And don't let there be any confusion. If you start thinking, well, that person was just complimenting me yesterday, and they're stabbing me in the back today, it is those actions of backstabbing that demonstrate what the person really is, what the person is really like. The same way that water reflects a face to a face, what goes on inside a man, what is in his heart, reflects what the man really is. A complimentary enemy is still an enemy. And a loving friend who is willing to openly rebuke, who is willing to correct you, is still a friend. And a person who is fully satisfied with himself doesn't want honey, doesn't want correction, doesn't want the good things that people bring to him, but a man who understands his own weakness, his own emptiness, and his own desire for the things of God, well, even a bitter thing like a rebuke is sweet to him. Okay, verse 8. Like a bird that wanders from her nest, so is a man who wanders from his home. There are two ways that this could be read or understood. One is if we're talking about an adult or a grown-up bird in this case. If that bird wanders too far from her nest, then predators are going to be able to attack the nest. The only reason for a nest is to have eggs to bring up your young, and your young are going to be affected by your absence. Because the second half of that verse says, so is the man who wanders from his home. You have responsibilities at your home. That's not only a place of 
comfort, but it's a place of responsibility. It's supposed to be a safe place, a safe environment where the parents can safely raise their children and hopefully do that in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. But a man who wanders away from home, in other words, a man who stays away from his home and his responsibilities, is going to suffer consequences the same way that a bird would. The bird is going to have his nest robbed. And a man who stays away from home is also going to have his children robbed from him because I think especially in this day and age, I mean, Solomon could not have imagined social media or television. He couldn't have imagined the internet and the ongoing glut of horrible and pornographic things that exist on the internet. And your kids have access to that. When you're not there engaging them, when you're not there teaching them, when you're not there instructing them in the ways of righteousness and proper behavior, where are they going to turn? They're going to turn to their friends. They're going to turn to social media. They're going to turn to the internet, to TV, and their heads are going to be filled with all kinds of pernicious stuff. So like a bird abandoning his nest, a man who abandons his home is going to suffer the consequences. Now, the other way that that verse can be read is if the bird we're talking about is a young bird. If a young bird leaves the nest too early, they are not fully developed. They're not ready to fly on their own, to hunt on their own, to feed themselves. And so there are immediate consequences of leaving home too soon. Like a bird that wanders from her nest, so is a man who wanders from his home. Now, in order to understand verse 9, we have to understand that in the Middle East, 3,000 years ago, they didn't have showers and bathtubs and running water and indoor plumbing the way that we think of. And so bodily fragrances were very important to them. And those fragrances were oils and perfumes. Oftentimes, the really fragrant oils and perfumes could be very expensive. But a good fragrant oil or perfume could make a person happy. And so we read in verse 9, oil and perfume make the heart glad. And then the comparison that Solomon draws is, so a man's counsel is sweet to his friend. Remember back in verse 7, a sated man loathes honey, but to a famished man any bitter thing is sweet. And we concluded that that was proper instruction, proper rebuke. Well, here we're talking about proper counsel, good wisdom, good advice. The same way that oil and perfume can cheer somebody up, a man's good counsel, a man's good advice, a man's wisdom to a friend is sweet to him, is attractive to him. Friends with friends desire to be instructed, corrected, advised, to get good counsel from one another. How often have you found yourself picking up the phone and calling a friend just for the purpose of saying, 
I'm thinking about doing something. What do you think of this? When my dad was alive, he was my chief counselor. Before I did anything big or important or expensive, I would always check with him and say, do you think this is a good idea? Nowadays, in looking for other counselors, I've turned to my friends, and at GCA, I have a couple of very, very good friends, some of whom have been my friend 30 and 40 years. And so, when I'm thinking about doing something, I will call them, I will ask them, I will say, what is your advice, what is your counsel, maybe you've dealt with something like this before, Am I making a mistake here and I just don't see it? Am I too full of myself and my own opinion as I'm going forward? Give me your counsel. Give me your advice. And when friends do that, that is sweet to me. That is helpful to me. And while I'm on the topic, there have been plenty of times that those same friends I'm talking about have had to correct me have had to rebuke me, have had to say, you know, that wasn't a particularly good idea, or what you did, or what you said, or how you handled yourself in this particular situation was not clever, was not wise, certainly wasn't attractive, and didn't help anybody. So whether advice or whether rebuke, if it's done in love, if it's done from a friend, somebody who I know has my best interest at heart, That's a really valuable thing. That's a really sweet thing. And so verse 10 says, Do not forsake your own friend or your father's friend. That would be a friend of the family. And do not go to your brother's house in the day of calamity. Better is a neighbor who is near than a brother far away. I think what Solomon is getting at is sometimes you can have friends that are closer to you than a brother. Sometimes your friends are your family. And if a friend is going through a time of difficulty, a time of distress, they need some help, we're told not to forsake a friend. And then contrarywise, if it's you that's going through the difficulty, Don't go all the way to your brother's house thinking family is going to be the solution. As you're going through your calamity, recognize the value of your friends. Because better is a neighbor. I believe he's talking about a friendly neighbor, somebody you're close with. Better is somebody who's close than a brother who you can't get to. Sometimes a really good close best friend is the most valuable thing you're going to have during your times of calamity and difficulty. I mean, I have a brother. I love my brother. He's a good guy. I could count on him in most every circumstance. But I can also think of plenty of times in my life where there was an immediacy to my trouble. Things are happening right now, and I need help. And it has been my friends who have stepped up. If they're in trouble, I'm going to help them. If I'm in trouble, they're going to help me. Do not forsake your own friend or your father's friend. 
and do not go to your brother's house in the day of calamity. Better is a neighbor who is near than a brother who is far away. And all of that combined, I think, is simply demonstrating the value of good friends, of loving friends, of kind and compassionate, wise, instructive friends who care enough about you and who love you enough to rebuke you and correct you and be there during a time of difficulty and trouble, give you sweet, appropriate counsel when necessary. Boy, if you can find a friend like that, well, that's more valuable than all the stuff, all the gold, all the products you may accumulate in this lifetime. A good, solid, loving, instructive, corrective, advising friend. That's a gift from God. Verse 11 then says, Be wise, my son, and make my heart glad that I may reply to him who reproaches me. I think the best way to read and understand that rather cryptic little couplet is to assume that Solomon is saying that the reproaches that might come at him are reproaches about being a good father. Because the proof positive that you are a good father is that you've raised a good son. And if you've raised a son who is wise, faithful, trustworthy... That is a reflection of you and the work that you have put into them. So then your reply to anybody who might reproach you is, but look at my son. Look at what a good person he turned out to be. That's not a random occurrence. That's because I actually did raise him correctly. If I may, let me tell you a, a quick little story that I think reflects that idea. It's one of the reasons that I really relate to that verse. And besides, I'm sitting at home recording this particular lesson, so it doesn't matter if it's a little bit longer than an hour. I have no one staring at me going, come on, let's go, Jim. So here's my story. Years ago, my son was in public school, and for those of you who don't know, my son is autistic. He has Asperger's syndrome. He's a very high-functioning autistic, but sometimes social situations are very difficult for him to navigate. Well, he was in public school in his young days, and to say that his civil rights, to say nothing of his emotional state, were being abused in that school is an understatement. So one day I organized a meeting with the principal and his teachers, advocates from Tennessee Voices for Children, as well as the president of the school board, and I basically got them all to sign the IEP of life. If my son continued in the public education system, he at least had all these guarantees in writing that everybody had signed off on. Then once I got them all to sign off on it, I stood up and said to the collective group of people, you'll never see him again. And that was it. My son never went to public school again, and that was the beginning of my homeschooling adventure. 
Well, as I was collecting my stuff and getting ready to walk out the door, the principal stopped me and he said, Mr. McClarty, do you think your son can get an adequate education at home? And I said to him, if he only gets an adequate education at home, that will be more than he's getting here. Okay, so fast forward. My son graduated high school with a solid B average. Then he went on to college, where he became literally a 4.0 student. Today, he has his four-year degree, and somewhere in those four years, he actually got an A- minus in a class, which really upset him because he didn't maintain his perfect 4.0. He has like a 3.9999. And he is a recent graduate of the Nashville Software School. So my son carries his bachelor degree and his accreditations, and he's a really smart, capable guy who still struggles with some social situations. And so there's a part of me that really wishes that I could go back to that principle and say to him, you don't remember me, but you asked me a pointed question you asked me if my son could get an adequate education at home with just his father as his teacher. And I think I can answer that question now. In other words, my wise son makes my heart very glad. And he gives me something that I can use when I'm reproached. When the principal tried to call me down for what I was doing, I now have the evidence of the wisdom of that choice, and the evidence is my son. Be wise, my son, and make my heart glad that I may reply to him who reproaches me. I like that verse. Verse 12, then, is about how do you react when you see evil in this world? Do you run toward it, or do you run away from it? It says a prudent man, a wise, a thinking man, sees evil and hides himself. The naive proceed. They move toward it and pay the penalty. Evil always has a penalty attached to it. And the naive of this world move toward that evil. And if they end up with consequences, those are deserved consequences because they didn't turn away from the evil. Now, you may think, okay, in my day-to-day -day world, I don't see, I don't experience open evil. There's nobody outside saying, come on, let's go ransack houses and kill people. But evil is a subtle thing. It can be something as simple as what you're watching on TV, what movie you go to, how you react when the people around you, say your co-workers, when they start saying depraved things, when they start joking salaciously. What do you do? Do you become part of it, or do you turn away from it? The better part of wisdom is obviously to
to hide yourself away. Don't be part of it. Don't participate in that. Because even your tolerance of evil in films or in movies or in art or in music creates that market. And the marketeers of this life are going to keep churning out ever more offensive material because, well, that's what people want. So it is the better part of wisdom to just not participate in those things. Find something more productive, more valuable, something wiser to do with your time. A prudent man sees evil and hides himself. The naive proceed and pay the penalty. Verse 13. Take his garment when he becomes surety for a stranger. And for an adulterous woman, hold him in pledge. That whole idea goes back to Proverbs 20, verse 16. Solomon is adamant about not becoming surety for a stranger, because then the stranger, who has no obligation or tie to you, is likely to just abandon the court, and then you're left holding the bag. And if that's the case, Solomon says it is still justice then to take your garment from you if you have put your garment up as a pledge for somebody who then didn't stand before the court. It's only proper that you give up whatever you used as your pledge. Take his garment when he becomes surety for a stranger. And if you become surety for an adulterous woman, then hold him in pledge. Him, not just his coat. Make him responsible for the sin, for the rebellion of the adulterous woman that he stood up for. Take his garment when he becomes surety for a stranger, and for an adulterous woman, hold him in pledge. Verse 14. He who blesses his friend with a loud voice early in the morning, it will be reckoned a curse to him. This is just really sane advice. Compliments are good. Compliments are appropriate. If you love your friend and you want to praise him, your lips praising him, that's all good. That's all fine. But timing, even if you're doing something really good, something appropriate, something valuable, and you're doing it at the wrong time, your lack of discernment, where time is concerned, can make your good thing a bad thing. And that's why Solomon not only said, he who blesses his friend, but blessing your friend with a loud voice, so you're really making a proclamation at the top of your lungs, and then you're doing it early in the morning. Now, your friend, your neighbor, and his family are probably sleeping early in the morning. And even though you might be saying very nice and kind and gracious words, the very fact that you're doing it loudly in the morning and arousing their whole family from their sleep is not a good thing. Your friend is going to come out and say, can you shut up for a while? Even though you may have meant it as a good thing, you ended up disturbing the very person who you supposedly love and are praising. 
So he who blesses his friend with a loud voice early in the morning, it'll be reckoned by that friend as a curse to him. What did I say earlier? You can tell anybody anything. It all depends on how you tell them. And telling somebody how great they are while you're rousing them from a good night's sleep and you're doing it early in the morning and you're waking up their wife and you're waking up the kids and you're just, you're causing a great disturbance in order to tell them a good thing. Well, that is not a good discerning move. Yes, compliment them. Yes, praise them. But do it at the proper time. Then verse 15 harkens all the way back to Proverbs 19.13. It says, A constant dripping on a day of steady rain and a contentious woman are alike. He who would restrain her restrains the wind and grasps oil with his right hand. Okay, so let's work our way backwards through this. Trying to grab oil with your right hand, oil is very viscous, and it's impossible to grip oil. Oil will run right through your hands, through your fingers, down onto the ground. So that is a pointless exercise. And trying to capture and stop and restrain the wind is pointless because you can't control the wind, and even if you captured some little bit of it, the whole rest of it continues to be windy. So restraining the wind is impossible, and grabbing yourself a nice handful of oil is impossible, and that's what Solomon compares to trying to restrain an angry, contentious, argumentative, never-happy woman. She is a constant irritant, the same way that when it rains, if there's a leak in the roof, you're going to hear the constant dripping. And because of the rain, you can't get up on the roof and fix it at that moment. So what do you do? You put a pot or a container underneath the drip, and then you hear the drip, 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 drip going on, and that becomes very, very irritating. And that's what a contentious, argumentative woman is like. Between wives and concubines, Solomon lived with a thousand women. And the one characteristic that he emphasizes among all women is that when they are angry and contentious, there's really nothing you can do. You can't restrain the wind. You can't grab a handful of oil. And even though it is irritating as can be, there's really not a whole lot you can do about it. And that is why he says things like, you know, it's better to just leave, go on the roof, dwell in a small corner of the roof, rather than dwell in a large house with an angry woman. Anger never really accomplishes much of anything outside of driving people away. Contrast contentious, angry women with the idea of oil and perfume that makes the heart glad and so is a man's counsel sweet to his friends. Good and wise and well-thought-out responses, instruction, conversation, are all very, very valuable. 
and something that you want to be close to, something that all people find attractive. But contention and anger just drives people away. Now, since we've been talking about a loving rebuke, faithful wounds from a friend, instruction, correction from a friend, a man's counsel is sweet to his friend, along those lines we understand the value of a good friend. And a good and a wise friend giving you advice and counsel shapes you, changes you, instructs you. And that's what verse 17 is about. Verse 17 says, Iron sharpens iron. And so likewise, by comparison, Solomon says, One man sharpens another. That's the value of friendly, loving interaction. That's also the value of loving correction. That's the value of loving instruction. The same way that you can sharpen iron with iron, you can sharpen and be sharpened by a friend. Sitting and talking, discussing, reading the Word of God, and helping one another understand it. That's how knowledge and wisdom are passed on. And so there's just so much value to having a faithful, loving friend. Not only is he a help in a time of need, but he will also correct and instruct you when you need correction and instruction. And he will help make you into the person that God has deigned you're going to be. Just the same way that iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Verse 18 then, He who tends the fig tree will eat its fruit, and he who cares for his master will be honored. There are consequences for good work. If you're willing to not be lazy, if you're willing to do the work, if you're willing to tend to a fig tree, the end result is figs. You have something to eat. And if you are a servant working for a master, working for a boss, if you care about what you're instructed to do, and then you do it diligently, you're going to receive honor. You're going to receive promotion because you have demonstrated that you are trustworthy to what your master expects from you. So when you put those two phrases together, I think you see that Solomon is saying, good work results in rewards. And then verse 19, we've already looked at, as in water, face reflects face, so the heart of man reflects man. So that takes us to verse 20. Now, when I began this lesson, however long ago that was, we talked about the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And at that point, we were emphasizing the pride of life. Now I want to emphasize the lust of the eyes. Because verse 20 says, Sheol and Abaddon are never satisfied. In more contemporary lingo, we would say death and destruction. Sheol, or the grave, the netherworld. And Abaddon was a place of destruction. And one of their chief characteristics is that no matter how many people they have killed or destroyed, 
They're never satisfied. They're always willing and able to kill and destroy more. Solomon uses that premise in order to say, nor are the eyes of man ever satisfied. The same way that the grave never reaches the satiated point. Otherwise, it would start rejecting people who have died, but the grave is willing to take everybody. It's never going to be filled up. And that's what the eyes of mankind are like. They're never satisfied. It doesn't matter how much you have. It doesn't matter how much God has blessed you with. It doesn't matter how many good things have been provided to you in this lifetime. There's always something more. And the way that you come to know, the way that you come to understand that there is more, is that you see it. That's usually your first introduction to the more. It's that you see it. You're aware that it exists because your eyes have seen it. And the minute your eyes see it, the lust of your flesh says, I want it. And heaven forbid somebody you know has it, because then you will become jealous of them. Never satisfied. That's how we are. We're never satisfied. And by the way, the marketeers of this life know that, which is why they don't just put, let's say, laundry detergent in a nondescript gray box. Instead, the box that the detergent comes in is full of colors that try to attract your eye. And they know that if they can get your eye, they can get to your desire, they can make it something you want, and that you just can't live without. It all starts with your eyes, and your eyes are never content. But I think it's interesting that the thing Solomon used to compare it to was death and destruction. Sheol and Abaddon are never satisfied, nor are the eyes of man ever satisfied. Then we've already looked at verse 21. The crucible is for silver and the furnace for gold, and a man is tested by the praise accorded him. Which takes us to verse 22, and Solomon is one more time going to turn his attention to the foolishness of fools. He has said a couple of prior times that the rod is for the back of a fool. Correction, instruction is appropriate for a fool. But in this verse, verse 22, he is also admitting that no amount of correction to a genuine fool is ever really going to change his foolishness. People who lack God-given wisdom are unable to make themselves wise. They're going to remain in their foolish estate. And so verse 22 says, Though you pound a fool in a mortar with a pestle, along with crushed grain, yet his folly will not depart from him. Anyone who has ever spent any time in chemistry class should be familiar with a mortar and a pestle. Those tools are used for crushing things down to a fine dust. 
and they were used to crush grain. And Solomon uses that sort of grain-crushing exercise to compare to fools. Even though you pound a fool with your mortar and pestle for the sake of grinding him down, he's going to remain in his folly. His folly is not going to depart from him, which I think shows the very desperate estate that human beings are in. We wallow in our foolishness, and no amount of correction or instruction repeatedly applied is going to bring us to genuine wisdom unless it is God who opens our minds, opens our ears, opens our eyes, changes our stony heart into a heart of flesh, and gives us the ability to understand what genuine wisdom is, how we ought to walk, how we ought to behave, how we ought to help others, how we ought to instruct others, how to say a word properly timed, how to encourage people, how to lift other people up, how not to gossip, how not to backbite, how not to be constantly angry, but learn to accept things such as they are. The inability to genuinely understand those things is innate within us. And no amount of physical correction is ever going to bring a genuine fool to the place of wisdom, his heart has to be changed. His mind has to be changed. He has to be changed internally because no amount of external correction is truly going to change him. He's going to remain in his folly. And that is certainly the human condition. Though you pound a fool in a mortar with a pestle along with crushed grain, yet his folly will not depart from him. Verse 23, know well the condition of your flocks and pay attention to your herds. Now, I think verse 23 all the way through to verse 27 is one section. So I'm going to read it out and then we'll discuss it for a moment. And then hopefully we will be done with this lesson. Know well the condition of your flocks and pay attention to your herds. For riches are not forever, nor does a crown endure to all generations. When the grass disappears, the new growth is seen, and the herbs of the mountains are gathered in. The lambs will be for your clothing, and the goats will bring the price of a field. And there will be goat's milk enough for food, for the food of your household and sustenance of your maidens. When we began the book of Proverbs months ago, we read that there was a time and a season for everything, and that God had a purpose for everything under heaven. I think this collection of verses is speaking to that same thing, that there are positive consequences for paying attention to what's important right now. When Solomon was king, wealth was determined by flocks. If you had sheep, if you had goats, if you had pigs, if you had horses even, cattle, the size of your herds determined your wealth. And all of that required attention. If you were lazy, if you just settled in your bed and didn't go out and pay attention to your crops or to your herds, 
then certainly you were going to become poor because that was all going to dissipate. So Solomon's instruction is, in verse 23, that you need to know the condition of your flocks. You need to pay attention to your herds. If you know what's going on with your animals, then there are going to be positive consequences. If you're not paying attention, then everything is going to fall apart on you. Because riches are not forever. If you just lay about lazily and don't pay attention, what you do have, your animals, your flocks, your riches, are not going to endure. Your fields will become dirt. Your animals will become sick and die off so that you are left with nothing because riches are not forever. Nor does a crown endure to all generations. Even if you are a leader, if you are a crowned prince over some people, eventually that authority, those riches, are all going to run out if you're not diligent, if you don't do the work that is necessary in order to avoid that loss. So things happen. Things happen cyclically. As the seasons change and the grass disappears, there's then new growth that comes up behind it. That new grass is then food for grazing for your animals. At the appropriate time, you're going to go gather herbs on the mountains. You're going to gather them in. You're going to do the work because it's the season. It's the time. It's appropriate to go do it. As you raise up your flocks, your lambs are going to benefit you. Their wool is going to give you clothing. And selling a goat can bring about the money that you can use to purchase a field so that you can grow more good food. And because you have a flock, then there's going to be milk. Milk for nourishment for you, for your children. Food for the whole household and to sustain your maidens which is a reference to your servants, those that are working for you. So your families and your employees are going to benefit from you doing the work diligently and paying attention right now. There are consequences as times go by, as seasons change. There is work that's appropriate to the moment. Sometimes the herds have to be taken out to graze. Sometimes the herds have to be gathered into a sheepfold. The grass may disappear. But then because God is faithful, new grass, new growth appears underneath it. And the mountainous herbs that are used for food, that are used for medicinal reasons, those grow at the appropriate season, and that's the time to go gather them. So do the work at the appropriate time. And then you'll benefit from your work, whether it's clothing or whether it's selling some of your herds in order to get the price of buying a field or whether it's milk to be used as food in order to sustain your whole family and your household and your servants. There are good consequences for the work you're doing right now. So when you put all those verses together, I think what Solomon is getting at is there's stuff that you can do right now. The benefits of what you do right now may not be seen until further down the line. But those future days are coming whether you do the work right now or not. 
And when those days come, either what you have is going to be gone because you used it all up, you just continued spending your money and eating your herds, living for the moment, living for right now without thinking about the days to come and providing necessary things for your family. That stuff is going to run out. A crown does not last forever. Riches disappear. So, whatever is before you today, pay attention to that today. Because today is the time, today is the season for whatever tasks are before you right here, right now. And if you're not lazy, if you're not foolish, if you're willing to get up and do the work, you're going to have the good consequences that result from your work. I spoke to a fellow one time who was uh, probably in his mid-50s, and he was talking about his regrets in life. And he said to me, one of my regrets in life is that I never learned to play the piano. And I said, what's stopping you? Start today. Because five years from now is coming no matter what. And if you are still alive in five years, it'll be another five years of not playing the piano. But if you start today, five years from now, you'll have played piano for five years. And you might be pretty good at it. So the reality is, if you live, that's up to God. You should say, if God wills, I'll do thus and so, and you shouldn't brag, you shouldn't boast about your future. But you should also recognize that the future is coming. The day you're living in right now was future to you 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago. And now here it is. What you have today, what you're doing today, is a consequence of decisions that you made years ago. With that knowledge, recognize that where you're going to be five years, ten years from now, is going to be the result of the work that you put in right here, right now. Because the future is coming. And if God allows you to live another year, five years, ten years, then you're going to be living with the consequences of the decisions and the work that you put in today. Well, I hope that was a helpful chapter to you. I have been enjoying sitting in my room here at my house and teaching these lessons, but honestly, I am looking forward to getting back to GCA with the Wednesday Night Faithful and being able to look into people's eyes as I teach these lessons, because these are lessons for people. Solomon's words of wisdom were meant for people to understand, observe, and walk in. So, another week or two of this method, and then I think we'll be returning to our normal midweek services at GCA, if God wills and I live. Talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.